So good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. You're all back again. Um, yeah, I'm not going to look at the second page of people. It would be way too scary. This is enough. <laughs> so um, I'd like to start with just saying that this talk presents my particular flavor or my take on, on the teachings and practice. So my way is not academic, but is more in the style of kitchen table conversation. So there you go. Um, so the topic for today is liberation and our practice of learning and applying ways to end suffering in our daily lives. The central teachings and tools that I'll be talking about are based on the 12-fold uh, chain of dependent origination or dependent co-arising, which Joel talked about yesterday, and the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Path. So um, Joel talked about, uh, very eloquently, about the 12 fold chain of dependent origination, which the Buddha realized the night of his enlightenment. When he sat down under the Bodhi tree and vowed not to leave until he had found the answer to the end of suffering. So Joel talked about the causal links, the causal factors, link by link showing how one factor conditions the next from the first factor of ignorance going on to fabrication, going on to consciousness, going on to the sixth uh, sense base, um, and then uh, contact as contact, and then feeling on up to birth and the consequent the conditions, um, old age and death, and the consequent suffering, pain that we experience from that. So because each link conditions the next one, we can interrupt or, or break one link, only one link, and the whole chain will fall apart, resulting in the cessation of suffering. In addition, the Buddha realized that it is possible to convert certain, uh, certain of the causal factors or links into tools to realize the end of suffering. So for example, Let's look at ignorance, the first link. Now, ignorance, by ignorance, in this context, it is defined as not seeing events in terms of the four noble truths. So that means not seeing events in terms of our suffering, the causes of that suffering, 
the cessation of that suffering and the practice path leading to its cessation. Now, this is a pretty basic thing, but until I actually was working with this, I hadn't thought about, hadn't thought so clearly about this, that anytime something comes up in the term of suffering, I could say, hmm, so this is suffering, I got that, and I know I can work with it. Um, but then we look at the cause. So you, so you could just go through them. And I don't know, I guess I, I just hadn't, uh, hadn't understood that as well as I do now. <laughs> um, so the Four Noble Truths are best understood as not as uh, a body of facts about stress or suffering, but rather as categories for framing any and all experience in such a way to diagnose and cure the problem of suffering and death. So not just a body of facts, but categories for framing any and all experience. So instead of looking at an experience in terms of self or other, or your likes and your dislikes, which um, I don't know about you guys, that's a, lot of, a lot of times that's the direction I go. <laughs> naturally, uh, but instead be looking at them in terms of where's the stress, what's causing it, and how to put an end to it. So once you divide the territory of experience in this way, you realize that each of these categories is actually an activity. Now the word stress is a noun, but the experience of stress is shaped by your intentions, something you do. So this holds true for the other truths. The same thing, that the experience of stress is shaped by our intentions, so it's, it is something that we do. So seeing this, we can work on perfecting the skill appropriate for each activity. So to perfect this skill, you also have to abandon the cause of stress to realize its sensation and develop the path to cessation. So that's what we're looking for. We look at our, our suffering and then we say, okay, what is the cause? Ultimately, I'm gonna to have to abandon the cause, okay. So the skill with regard to stress is to comprehend it. As I, when I'm saying stress, I, I mean suffering. I'm using them synonymously. There's a lot of different words, dissatisfaction and stress, suffering, they're all talking about the same thing. So the skill with regard to stress or suffering is to comprehend it, this is the first noble truth, to the point where, or actually, Anyway, to the point where you have no more passion, aversion, or delusion toward it. And once you fully mastered these skills, you've developed the knowledge that puts a total end to ignorance, underlying all the other factors in dependent co-arising. So all, the, all these factors or links of dependent co-arising are processes and events 
that are immediate, immediately present in your awareness. So um, there's an example here. Uh, in the case of um, the link of becoming, this is becoming is like when you're creating a self, creating an identification. Uh, in the, in the process of becoming, there's a process that comes from doing, doing something to, to become something. And that can be observed. You can observe what you're doing. And um, you can also observe um, the intention in the actions. And you can change that intention in which case you would change uh, whether you're actually becoming or not. It's kind of confusing, but at any rate, the ability to see all of these links simply as processes and events without any reference to the question of whether there is anything underlying them is an important skill. It's just a kind of a, a novel way of looking at it all. <clears throat> But once we develop the knowledge by thoroughly understanding the Four Noble Truths, again, the truth of suffering, the truth of the causes of suffering, the cessation of suffering in the April path, we can turn the vicious cycle of suffering on its head and transform it into a more virtuous cycle of the path. So this is the good news. This is the reason for joy for all Buddhists everywhere. Yet the question remains as to how in daily life we actually accomplish this, what do we do? I mean, these were instructions, but let's look at it a little bit more closely. So it's important to remember that each uh, truth of the noble, uh, four noble truths, each, uh, each truth has its own task. So, and with regard to the first noble truth, the task is to thoroughly understand one's own suffering and including understanding the underlying um, factors that influence that is the three marks of existence. So the three marks of an, an existence are impermanence. Everything changes. The second is no self or the idea that there's no substantial uh, self. If we look at an individual, for example, I'm looking at Maria. Here's Maria today, but Maria two days ago was not the same. Everything is constantly changing and it was not the same as 10 years ago or when she was six years old. So there's no substantial self that's that's defined as permanent. And then the third uh, mark of existence is suffering itself. So by contemplating one's own suffering, one realizes that in actuality, one's suffering is not just yours, but that everyone suffers at one time or another. We all feel pain and loss. Consequently, it's not mine and it's not yours, but it's the pain. This is the human condition. It's the pain and we share in that. 
we are together in that. So um, I'd like to give a, a personal example of um, when this became very clear to me. Um, in 2005, uh, well, I'll start by my dad. I was very close to my dad and he passed in 2005. And so, and not surprisingly, it hit me pretty hard. I, um, I just grieved and grieved and grieved. I didn't think I'd ever stop. And at one point I, I went to a Hakomi workshop. Um, it was Ron Kurtz and the whole gang out at the crossings. And um, I, I was actively grieving during the whole, during the sessions. It was a mess. And um, anyway, after one session, I walked out and I, I was walking down a path and I heard Ron coming in his electric cart behind me. And I turned and, and he said, so how's it going? And I, in my usual way said, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay. And he started to ride off. And I said, and I went, oh boy, that wasn't so too swift on my part. I said, no, 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 wait. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, my dad just died and I'm having a hard time with it. And um, so he was listening and I said, um, I, my question is, is when is it ever gonna stop? It just seems to go on and on month after month. And he uh, rather wisely said, it'll stop when it stops, <laughs> which didn't, in a way, but, uh, but it still means it stops, right? But that was, it was very kind of him to stop and, and be with him. And I appreciated that. And, you know, he gave me something to, to hold on to. At that same time, I um, went to a, a social gathering of some people that I knew through uh, Seton Cove, the artist way. And um, there were a whole bunch of ladies there. And, you know, I walked in still in the state and grieving and, and the ladies asked me uh, how I was doing and I told her what was going on. And, and she immediately said, oh gosh, I, I really, I know how that is. Um, my mom died three years ago and it really, you know, took a toll. And so immediately um, I felt not alone in my suffering. And it was such a gift from her. And it also allowed um, to me feeling the compassion, receiving that from her to feel that for myself. And also that the next time that as I was in that situation where someone was going through the same thing, I could be the resource and say, oh, I know what that feels like, I'm so sorry. So I think that's what we can a practice that we can do for each other in terms of suffering as we join with each other as we walk this path of life together. So another practice that we can do in, on this level is to offer the merit of our practice to all those if we are grieving or if, if we're it's kind of stuck in anger, if we're stuck in, you know, whatever it may be, 
to offer the merit of our practice to all those, all those in the world that are suffering the same thing. And you can pretty much bet that you're talking about millions of people at the same time. And there's something about that process that, that eases the pain for you, but, but also I, I believe it has an impact on others, sending out the goodwill to, to others in their sorrow or what have you. Okay, so now I wanna move to the second noble truth, Samadaya. So in this one, we're trying to understand the causes of suffering. And the causes um, is cause, the causing of suffering is, is craving. And the craving comes from, it comes in three forms, greed, hate, and delusion, right? So we can study ourselves to understand our craving. You know, where do we fit in? Are we having greed of wanting, wanting more and more, can't get enough? Or is it hate? It's kind of like the ultimate of aversion. Ugh, doesn't exist, no. And delusion, delusion basically being not seeing things as they truly are. So we work with these things to try to understand what it is, what is that cause, what is our craving, and how does it occur, and just study that. In the third noble truth, Naroda, the Buddha taught that the way to extinguish desire, which causes suffering, that is craving, is to liberate oneself from attachment. And how do we do that? Through the disenchantment, disenchantment, knowing that the sense conditions clearly seeing them as they are without becoming enchanted, without getting misled. So it's kind of like life as it is, the only teacher. We get clear seeing. We want to clearly see. And this creates wisdom. So I'll give it one example, and of course it's endless, the amount of the, the kinds of clinging there are. Uh, I guess a Tani, Tani, um, Tani Sano, Tani Saro, the bhikkhu, said that there are four major kinds, one sensual, the second one is um, view, the third one is ah, the precepts and uh, rules. Isn't that interesting? It's like a source of craving. And um, the fourth one, it slipped my mind right now. I didn't write it down. Oh, well. So there are basically four, four of them. But in, in any case, I'll give you an example for um, clinging to great wealth, just to use one. So how can we liberate ourselves <clears throat> from that attachment? So we try to look at our desire clearly. Does it bring happiness? Does wealth bring happiness? Hmm. 
And that's the question. Well, studies have shown that there are actually studies on happiness and um, the studies have shown that basically once people um, cover the basics, they have enough food, they don't have to worry about it. They have enough water, they have enough um, shelter, they have love and care, you know, the basic, basic needs that their happiness and the happiness of very wealthy people are, it's not any greater. So anyway, that's just a thought to keep in mind when one is thinking about, about wealth. Another thing to consider would be, uh, what do you have to give up to gain it? That is to say, how many hours a day do you have to work? And what does that mean in terms of the relationship with your family? It's just those kinds of questions that one can go through when you're considering this. You could also gain it illegally, that's a possibility, but that comes with a lot more stress, I would think, uh, trying to keep it undercover. Also the, the threat of going to jail. Um, another thing is, uh, what do you do when you, um, to keep it, you know? I mean, there's always this possibility that it might get, that you might lose it. Like if you put it all in the stock market, you might, zoop, one day, all gone. Um, there's a wonderful quote by uh, the Buddha actually, that's, <laughs> he's talking about this very topic and he says, kings and thieves may steal it, may steal your wealth. <laughs> kings and thieves, I thought that was kind of funny. I don't know about kings these days, but maybe the government or, I don't know, fast-talking swindlers. Okay, then the fourth noble truth, which is Maga, the path to the cessation of suffering, or the Eightfold Path. So this is Buddha's pres prescription for the end of suffering, the Eightfold Path, the Middle Way. And it avoids both um, indulgence and severe asceticism. And the Buddha had tried both of those and they didn't work very well in his search for enlightenment. So he came to uh, the Eightfold Path. And to look at the Eightfold Path, eightfold path we might compare it to a physical path out on the green belt. <clears throat> so a physical path is one that exists whether you walk on it or not. But the Buddhist path exists only with our engagement with it. And we create this path with the activities of our bodies, hearts, and minds. All the teachings about the Eightfold Path are simply instructions indicating how we create the path as we go, as we go. So that doesn't mean creating this, you know, this idea and then we do this and then we do that and then this and then six months later we'll do that. And, you know, it's not that kind of path, right? It's, we get to this place, we're here right now and we can make a decision. <clears throat> are we gonna go this way or are we gonna go this way? And which is the way that 
that is the peaceful way, which is the way that's non-harming, which is the way is the most skillful way to deal with the, situ the uh, situation in front of you. And so it goes, and so it goes. So uh, like a forest path that has undergrowth, dense undergrowth, it's hard to get through. A path to freedom is limited by many mental and emotional obstacles. Like what? Well, there are many mental obstacles, like doubt might be one. Uh, emotional obstacles, fear. Fear can be a, a big obstacle for us to move along the way. And there are many others. So as humans, we have our own inner wilderness, if you will, with dangers and challenges. But we also have within us what it takes to be free of these dangers. And that's such an important point. Both is here. Both is here. So because the path and the obstacles to freedom are found inside of us, the Buddhist path requires us to take responsibility. Take responsibility for our own thoughts, attitudes, and actions. Why? Because suffering is not caused by unpleasant sensory contact, but by the attitudes and views about sensory contact, whether they're pleasant or not. So the path builds on the principle that we can move toward liberation by disengaging from perspectives and behaviors that weigh us down and replacing them with behaviors that lighten us and support us as we proceed, such as the paramitas. Um, generosity, dana, generosity, ethical conduct, patience, joyful effort, meditation, wisdom, or understanding. We can also resort to the four immeasurables or the Brahma Viharas, radiating loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity. These are our, these are our friends. This is our support. So what are the elements of the Eightfold Path in and of itself? So the Eightfold Path, um, there, there are eight of them, and they usually are listed in a particular order. But in the study of them, it's not necessary really to, to study them in any particular order um, because they all support and reinforce each other. So uh, that said, the, the one that's usually mentioned first is right view. And right view uh, gets us on the path. And the right view is, is really important. As I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about ignorance, the um, um, right view is, is not ignorance. That is, ignorance is not, <laughs> it's not right view. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
looking at things through the through the um, lens of the Four Noble Truths would be right right view. Um, the second one is right intention, which intention is a really important uh, factor in um, in the causal effects of uh, dependent co-arising. Because intention, you can really change things one way or another depending on your intention. You can really go south. You may do a good act. It's, I don't know if you guys have watched this show. Um, how much time do we have? 30 minutes, I think. On Netflix, The Good Place. It took me a while to get there, but I started watching it and I was thought it was hysterical, at least the first episode. And there's a woman, there's a character on there that she's, um, I think there's a lot of this stuff in there in the good, the good play. I mean, that show, there's a lot of this Buddhist stuff there. <laughs> anyway, there's a woman there, she's this beautiful woman. Um, and she was raised in a family with a sister and she was all the time, the, the sister was getting all the attention from the parents from day one. And she couldn't, it didn't, didn't matter what she did, they were all the time saying yes, but so-and-so did it this way and it was so great. So. She spent her whole life trying to compete with her sister and, and she thought, aha, I know what I'll do. I'll raise money for charities, which is a wonderful thing to do, no doubt. But because she, um, because she focused, was, her intention was to show up her sister or even to equal her sister. It wasn't necessarily for the charities. I mean. It, it was, but it wasn't. There was their real intention was something else. That's why she wasn't. Um, well, I'm telling, giving away some part of the story, but that's why she wasn't in the good place because her intentions were all wrong. Anyway, I don't know if that hurts or helps, but it, it's a sideline. So, right, in, so the intentions are are are, um, are primarily underlying motivations for what we say, think, and do. So it's. Um, by applying right view to our intentions uh, that we live by, we determine if we cause suffering or contribute to cessation. Okay. Um, the thing I wanted to talk about next is uh, a kind of suffering, self-inflicted uh, sort of suffering. I guess most of it, the kind that we're talking about today is self-inflicted. And um, uh, it's about self-blame. It's not always self-blame, but a lot of times it is. And, and it has to do with the second era, which probably most of you have heard of this. Um, so when we experience something painful, a physical illness or the news of the loss of someone we love, or we just witness the suffering all around us, it's as if uh, the world has shot an arrow into us. It's painful. Um, and when we, when we react with, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. My notes got out of order, the horrors. Anyway, okay. When we react with self-blame, anger, frustration, or blaming of others, I'm mainly focusing on the self-blame part, but Anyway, uh, this is suffering that we're creating for ourselves. And so this is the arrow that we shoot 
into ourselves, right? This is the second arrow. And it's based on a, a story that the Buddha told about dealing with suffering more skillfully. So the Buddha asked a student, if a person is struck by an arrow, is it painful? The student says, yeah, it is, it's painful. And the Buddha asks him, if a person is struck by a second arrow, is it more painful? Is it even more painful? And the student says, yeah, it is. So the Buddha explained, in life, we can't always control that first arrow. However, the second arrow is our reaction to the first. And with this second arrow comes the possibility of choice of how we're going to, to deal with that second arrow. So while we can't control our outside environment, we can, with practice, change this pattern of shooting ourselves with the second arrow. So there were two effective practices one can engage in to circumvent this human response to life so we can change the pattern is we can recognize the second arrow when we see it coming. We just ran out of gas on the side of the highway and you're starting to say, oh, why did I, you know, and start the second arrow. And so the practice is, is to be aware of that and, and just realize it, it happens, it happens and go on. And I mean, you can, you, can, you can dwell on it as long as you want if you wanna increase your suffering. I think we probably have enough without it. And the second part of it is, is just learning to be kinder to ourselves. And when, so you see the arrow coming and you offer yourself some self-compassion. And one way to do that is consider you're talking to, if it's not good enough to be talking to yourself, think about uh, you're talking to, you know, a young child or maybe a sibling, a younger sibling or even an older sibling, or, you know, somebody you really care about, how you, you wouldn't treat them that way. You wouldn't say, God, you idiot. You would say, you know, you'd be kind. And you would say, yeah, geez, that's happened to me before. It's a drag. So I was gonna give an example of one of my many second arrows. One was a really long time ago at uh, a retreat at Lotus Lake which is a, ah, Robinson members. Um, <clears throat> and um, I was timekeeper. And it was, like I said, my first or second retreat. <clears throat> and I don't remember what day this thing occurred. I can't, can't remember. It might have, um, it might have been in the first couple of days, but in any case, it, they had been long days. So we were starting at six in the morning and, and sitting you know, with Ken Hen and then talks and so forth, but sitting all the way to uh, nine o'clock at night. And so um, it was probably five till nine and both Peg and Flint were out of the room uh, giving practice discussion. And all of a sudden Flint comes in to, to where we were sitting to the, to the hall there 
and um, he sits down on his mat and he gives this really expansive commentary. I, I can't for the life of me remember what it was, but it was this really beautiful thing. And I thought, oh my God, it's five minutes. Surely he does not want me to ring the bell now. You know, it's nine o'clock, but you know, he probably wants us to sit with that for a little bit. So I thought, well, okay, we'll wait and he'll show me a sign. Well, no sign came after five minutes. Ugh. And I'm sweating saying, well, you know, and I, meanwhile, I know that, that David sitting next to me has really bad knees. And next to him was Todd, who also has bad knees. And they're, they're hurting. And I'm like, oh, gosh, this is horrible. What do I do? And um, I wait another five minutes. And then, thank goodness, um, uh, Peg's head pops into the, <laughs> into the hall and looks at me and goes, what's going on? Ring the bell. Okay, I'll do it. So it ended, and there was a there was a community wide sigh of relief that the pain was over. So that was my error, and I felt so bad about it that I caused pain among all these people, and I couldn't let it go. You know, I held on to that and and just immersed myself in guilt, which caused me trouble because I was talking about it, and so I, it wasn't a good wasn't a good thing. <laughs> so. Um, it's just better to, it's an innocent mistake, you know, and let it go. We all make them. Okay, so um, lastly, uh, I have another, just another example. Hope you don't mind my examples. Um, so Joel yesterday talked about uh, uh, delusions that we work with and he wanted us to talk about our one specific delusion and, and uh, think about it and, and think about whether it was useful to think of I vow to end it or we vow to end it and um, anyway uh, I had already thought of my delusion and I wanted to talk to you all about it in terms of how I've, how I've dealt with it so far. Not finished with it probably quite yet, but I'm getting close, <laughs> maybe. And so that's what I want to talk about. So it has to do with, I know you guys have heard about my mother. <laughs> my mother and I's relationship is very difficult. And so I, I have a... Uh, I have a lot of suffering around that, you know? It's tangled. You know, she wasn't uh, physically present uh, um, several months after I was born, and most of my life she wasn't emotionally present. So that was, that was hard to deal with and has been hard to deal with. Uh, she has trouble self-regulating. So it's no fault of her own. It's just her makeup, you know? And I, and I know that. Um, but as a child, trying to, to, to cope with these things, uh, I realized that, or I, I, my conclusion to it was that there was something really wrong with me. And how kids do that, you know, they take things on. So I took it on and I, 
I have held that for a really long time. There must be something wrong with me. And this caused uh, a lot of suffering for, for me and for her, you know, because I was always wanting her to be something different, which, gosh, what a burden for her, right? Um, so during this time, our time together, I have taken on the role of dutiful daughter. And here's where the wrong intention is. <laughs> Ever hoping she would finally see me and appreciate me for who I am. Right. The strategy has not worked. And it has not lessened our suffering. Quite the contrary. It's been a setup of uh, repeated disappointments and resentments. So the good news is this is, I, re, I recognize this is the reality of the situation. I have a lot of clarity around it now. We've been around the block. <laughs> you play a record so many times, you finally learn the words. Um, so uh, so the, part of the clarity was, is realizing it wasn't about me at all. Um, and it just took me a while to, to that to dawn on me. So if you think back on the instructions that we were talking about earlier, about seeing things through the Four Noble Truths, and specifically the cause of the suffering, the Second Noble Truth, we can see that the cause is uh, my wanting, the craving. I'm wanting things to be different. And the next step of developing dispassion without aversion or delusion <clears throat> toward the clinging. And I'm very optimistic about this process because frankly, at this point in time, I'm tired. Um, so what can be one, what can be done? I think uh, there's some things about this that we talk about in IFS, internal family systems about, and in Buddhism about turning toward our suffering. And in this case, uh, Part of it is turning to the suffering and really feeling it, you know, feeling that sense of uh, pain and yeah, um, maybe there's some aloneness in that, you know, separation. So um, yeah, and all that sadness that this little child carried about um, was, you know, longing for the mother's affection and so forth. And then realizing that it's our own responsibility um, to, to take care of that, to take care of that little one that's suffering. And especially, you know, when you're adult. So in this, in my case, uh, I realize that I have other resources. There are people that can actually see me and can um, appreciate who I am or what I am. And so, um, if I fill my cup with that before I go see my mother, I don't need to depend on her to be anything but what she is. Because I'm not wanting anything from her. Um, and so then I can attend to her without having my needs in the middle of everything. So in this way, I'm, I'm able to change the way I relate to her. It's not, still not perfect, but there have been big changes. And um, 
one time out of the blue as I was leaving. We, we, were, we were not a very affectionate family. There wasn't much of that going on. And um, so consequently, we may hug each other occasionally, not very often. And kissing was not the, the nah. So one time, and I didn't plan on this, it just out of the blue, as I was leaving, I bent over, she was not very tall, and, and gave her a kiss on the cheek. And I don't know why I did that, but I just did. And she just giggled. And I was, it was so thrilling. I thought, well, this, it was so delightful. You know, I mean, this is, this is really different from the way things usually go. And there have been other situations like that where, she, you know, I've done something, she'll be really agitated and I just go grab her and hug her like you would a child because at this age, she's 98. She's um, kind of like a child and sat her down and say, okay, I want to know what's going on and what's, what, what are you hurting? What's, what's, what? Where are you? And then she's will sit and you know related all the things that she and I, I couldn't change any of that, and had no intention of it. But somehow meeting, meeting that made all the difference in the world. We finished and and she looked complete, so it was a, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, probably for her, I presume for her, and also for me as well. So, I feel like these incidents are clearly uh, a result of practice, of clear seeing, you know, develop this clear seeing after sitting on this, on this cushion day after day. When you develop a certain amount of wisdom gradually over time, and the ability to apply compassion in a difficult moment. And that for me is, is liberation, you know, using these skillful means on a very small scale. So in closing, suffering is inevitable. It's an inevitable aspect of life because of impermanence. Some suffering is unavoidable, birth, old age, and death. But a lot of our suffering is self-inflicted through second arrows, craving, and attachment. And it's our responsibility to be aware, to see life as it is, as it unfolds, and use our wisdom and compassion to skillfully engage. Thank you very much. Looks like we have time for a few questions. Um, could you help me with this, Maria? If you have a question, raise your hand. Hi, Joel. Hey, Joel's raising his hand. Thank you. I hope I'm not muted. Looks yeah. like I'm not. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much. I just, um, the, the, the story that you just told of realizing that you had the capacity within you to see clearly that you didn't need your mother anymore to fill in 
for what had happened in the past mm. is that's a huge lesson for me and I, I i think i've gotten close to that in the past with my relationship with my siblings uh, which has been very difficult uh, but the way you just stated it Uh, it, it fit together perfectly. I just want to react, give you my my quick reaction that way. Thank you so much. Thank you. And just a reminder, the raise hand function is at the bottom left of the screen where it says reactions. You click on that and you'll see the raise hand. Otherwise, just put it in the chat and I'll let Laurie know. So we've got Rosemary. Rosemary next. Okay. Um, hi, Lori and everybody. Um, I just wanted to say that your um, your personal um, stories about to to illustrate what you know some of what you're talking about are so valuable um, because um, they're so real and um, where are you just moved around? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, relatable. And so it's, you know, in, in integrating them into your talk is, is just, you know, makes it come alive and, and um, um, so much more relatable. So thank you. Thank you. And then we have uh, Richie next. Hey, Richie. You. Um, I bought uh, a second arrow. Um, recently, I, I was I was quite ill and uh, in a lot of pain. And um, I, I knew I knew intellectually about the second arrow. I, I know it quite well in my mind. But when I was actually in the situation, I found it very difficult to um, pull that second arrow out. I was uh, having a bit of a hard time doing that. And it occurred to me, um, it's a lot is it a lot to do with how we talk to ourselves? You know, is that like um, a way to weaken the, the links in, in the chain uh, perceptions, you know, the way we perceive the world? Can we, can we talk to ourselves in a way that changes, changes that? Is that, is that to do with um, pulling the I, second arrow out? Yeah, I, I really believe so. Um, I, I think, for a long time, I found it easier to to think of myself when I get in these states as talk to myself as if I were a child, you know. And because a child, you're going to be really kind to, and, and um, yeah, and it helps because that negative negative talk and criticism is not not a, a lost you. Anyway, it's not your friend. Um, what we need is is to think is to send ourselves self compassion. I think that's very very important to be kind to ourselves. I don't know where you went. So it's like um, being a good friend to yourself. So yeah. Like talking to yourself like you're your best friend instead of um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's like this. Um, like I was saying, it. Instead of considering, you know, just, you know, start giving yourself a hard time, just stop it, just stop it. 
and then turn it as if if it were I don't know. I like to think of it in terms of the thing I find most vulnerable that I cherish so much, and think that you're talking to that that person. You know, you're you're going to be kind, and, and that's what you deserve. This negativity is not not useful. No, it's not. Yeah. It, and um, am I right in thinking that it's normal for it to take a while to take the second arrow out at first and it's just practice and you just keep doing it and doing it and eventually yeah. the, the time gets less and you, right. you get better at it. That's right. And, and if I didn't say that, I intended to. But in fact, you start, you start by noticing it coming. You know it's coming. Mm. And, yeah. you know, or, or no, you probably start with that hit and then how long are you going to stay with it? You know, like I stayed with my deal, whole intensive. But you know, I'm not as late. But uh, that, and that's not good. Um, and so the, maybe the next time it's only going to be a day, or maybe the next time it's going to you know, going to be less time. Yeah. So it's just another practice. Yeah. So it starts with the awareness. So, yeah. Mm. yeah, awareness, awareness, awareness. What what are we doing now? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you. Richard. Are you doing better? Um, I am. I'm still in a lot of pain, Sorry. but I'm, I'm, I'm practicing, <laughs> practicing, and I'm get, I'm getting there. I'm trying to learn new ways of talking to myself, you know, about it, and not get. Um, I, I'm starting to understand it a bit better now. How how that how that works. The pain doesn't go away, but you can change the way you um, you, you talk talk about it in your mind. You know that that's what I'm learning at the moment. Um, yeah, how you relate to it. Yeah. 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 Great. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm so glad yeah. you're here. Thank you. We have um, Robin next. Hi, Robin. Robin. I uh, when you mentioned that, I knew that story. I was there at Lotus Lake. <laughs> Here's so here. I think is a great teaching for all of us. Is that as you were apparently having all that experience, mm -hmm. I didn't notice that it was longer. <laughs> I had no idea and I only heard about it I think because later at the end of the retreat when you can talk people people were someone said like oh yeah did you know that one night when we we did more and you know the fact is the night that last sitting is is a struggle if it were 10 minutes or an hour and a half like it just kind of doesn't matter it just hurts <laughs> and so the idea that that in life there are situations that we take so seriously and put that second arrow in and take the weight. And just to know that someone else's experience can be completely different. Like I had no idea, like it just <laughs> did not matter in the realm of the hours and hours we were sitting and there were thunderstorms and it was hundred degrees. It just like didn't even register. <laughs> and so that's a great example of why the second arrow doesn't not only does it not help you, it doesn't help all the people, you know, <laughs> involved. Um, and then I, I was going to add, I totally agree. Your teaching with the kitchen table style, as you said, I think is totally the right flavor for who you are and your personal stories are great teaching mm -hmm. tools. So I want to affirm that. Um, to, so what, to what um, Richie was speaking to, um, it does take less time eventually between you notice second arrow negative thoughts. And there's an American writer, Annie Lamott, who 
talks about, excuse me, these, I'm going to use a harsh word. So if that bothers you, I apologize in advance. Hey, fuck you radio. And noticing, you know, when you're in a store, back when we went to stores, you could notice sometimes, wow, this music, like the music that's playing in the store is horrible. Like who chose this? And you just want to, you know, leave. Um, Cause you can't change it. But hey, fuck you radio, the radio in your head, you can change. You can say, I'm changing this channel. <laughs> This is not helpful. I want easy listening or I want silence. Um, and to we sit because we start developing the muscle to notice, wow, what was that thought? That was like a K-fuck-you radio thought. You wanna go with that or not? No, I don't wanna do that one. Okay, and that's why we sit. So like just to connect Laurie connected all the stuff so beautifully. And then the missing piece is the meditation. And that's why we sit. So we can hear, so we can know what's happening. Thank you, Laurie. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Robin. Right, we have Darcy in there. We ha you have two minutes left. So would you like to take one more person or? Um, yeah, okay. Darcy, I think, has been up a while. Oh, there you oh, are. There, yeah, I was just, I was thinking so many things as other people were talking, but I guess what I want to say is just, um, okay, so K Fuck You Radio, it's great, you can change the channel, maybe. But I'm, brought, I'm thinking about what Joel said yesterday those who have great realization of delusion are buddhas so i'm not going to get all onto myself if i still hear that i'm going to realize i hear it there you go and that's all that's all i want to say i have a lot of other things but we're done and i love your style of teaching thank you so much oh, thank you Darcy.